Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Space Force, What's Next? I am John J.V. Venable. I'm a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and I have a great uh, program lineup for you ahead. Um, we'll start out uh, as an afternoon overview. We'll do some introductions here shortly and have some uh, brief opening remarks to follow by uh, Mr. Jim Bridenstine. Uh, followed by a brief uh, Q&A, uh, and I would appreciate it if you'll think ahead right now and start typing in questions into that lower right-hand window of that WebEx uh, thing on the right side of your screen. First, we'll take on uh, Jim Bridenstein, and then we'll take on our panel. After we uh, have our opening remarks um, with, uh, with Jim and we uh, bid him a farewell, then we'll introduce our panel or bring them on board, and then I'll pelt them with an initial round of questions and then follow it with your questions from the audience. With that, uh, let me start out with the introductions. The Honorable Jim Bridenstine is a former E2C and FA-18 pilot uh, with the Navy. He has more than 333 trap landings on aircraft carriers. Um, he followed his career in, uh, in the service by serving again as a, a congressman from Oklahoma's first congressional district before being nominated by President Trump to be the 13th uh, administrator of NASA. Under his direction, NASA launched its new human lunar exploration mission or program called the Artemis program putting the organization on track for a 2024 lunar landing. Next, we'll have uh, Dr. Everett Ev Dolman. Um, he began his career as an intelligence analyst for the National Security Agency before moving on to uh, the United States Space Command in 1986. He received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1995 and is now a professor of comparative military studies in the Department of Space Power at the Air Force's Air Command and Staff College. And finally, we have Dr. M.V. Coyote Smith. Uh, Coyote was a career space and missile officer in the United States Air Force and is a graduate of the inaugural class of the Air Force's Space Weapons School, where he went on to become an instructor. He received his PhD from the University of Reading in the United Kingdom and retired from the Air Force uh, as a colonel in 2016. He currently serves as a professor of strategic studies at the Air University's Air Command and Staff College. And ladies and gentlemen, before I introduce uh, the Honorable Jim Bridenstine, I would like for you to um, answer two poll questions for us. One is gonna come up on screen right now. And uh, Catherine, if you would load, us, uh, load it for us, I'll give you about a minute. How is the United States currently positioned to defend against a concerted attack on our space assets by a, a peer competitor? Take a minute to uh, pick one of those three responses. Well prepared, somewhat prepared, or poorly prepared. And we'll uh, take on these questions a little bit later on uh, in, in our, uh, our event this afternoon. And now the second question, Catherine, if you would.
Take a minute to rate U.S. offensive counterspace capabilities in relation to China and Russia. Just select one of these answers. The U.S. is well ahead of its peers. We're at a parity with our peers. The U.S. is somewhat behind its peers, or the U.S. is well behind its peers with regard to offensive counterspace capabilities. I'll give you another couple of seconds to answer this one. All right, Catherine, if you would, uh, would uh, Mr. Bridenstine, would you come up uh, both visually, sir, and uh, with your audio? And sir, the floor is yours. It is my pleasure to give you uh, to our audience for a few remarks. All right. Well, thank you so much, JV. It's great to be with you. Great to be with the Heritage Foundation and, of course, uh, the professors that are with us uh, from the Air Command and Staff College. Um, great, great place to, to do a lot of learning. And what I'd like to do is just kind of start with uh, some of the things, in fact, that I learned when I was at the Air Command and Staff College um, and how NASA actually uh, plays a, a big role in uh, space power, if you will, or I would say national power in general. So at the Air Command and Staff College, what they will teach you is that we have elements of national power and they oftentimes refer to the acronym DIME, diplomatic power, information power, military power, and economic power. And the question for every agency in the U.S. federal government is how, do, how does that particular agency play into those elements of national power to actually deliver benefits for the American taxpayer and the American citizens? And, and the answer is unique to each individual agency. Some people might say, why is the NASA administrator here talking about the Space Force? Well, there is a very important partnership between all of us who are involved in space. And when we think about that entire acronym DIME, diplomatic power, information power, military power, economic power, NASA plays a unique role in, in all of them at some level. On the diplomatic side, uh, we, we operate the International Space Station, which is operated by 15 different countries. We've had astronauts from uh, you know, 19 different countries. We've had experiments on the International Space Station from 103 different countries. And of course, when we think about robotic exploration of other planets and throughout the solar system um, and, and astrophysics, heliophysics, the study of the sun, astrophysics, the study of deep space with telescopes, telescopes in space, we have agreements with nations all over the world. We have over 700 agreements right now with nations in these diplomatic efforts. So NASA really is, I think, a great tool of diplomacy. And I think one of the areas where you find it strongest um, is one where some people would scratch their heads, and that is, you know, the relationship between the United States of America and Russia when it comes to space exploration, uh, even through some of the most challenging times, has, has been strong. We go back to the Apollo program. After Apollo, we had the Apollo-Soyuz program. So in the 1970s, we had American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts living and working together in space in the height of the Cold War. Um, then we had the shuttle Mir program. And then of course, after that, the International Space Station program, where Russians and Americans have been living and working on the International Space Station now for over 20 years, if you can imagine that. So this is really a tool of diplomacy um, that is unique. Uh, and I think that, that that's important when we think about how we're gonna deter aggression in space. Um, nothing deters aggression like all of us having <laughs> people in space, which is a, a unique perspective that NASA brings to the table. 
So that's the diplomatic side. Then we have the information side. We think about the elements of national power. When, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, every single person on the planet saw or heard that event. Um, and, and what's amazing is that just 13 years later, Ronald Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, and it was belittled. It was, uh, people said, you know, the opposition said it can't be done, it's not technologically achievable, it's too expensive, we will never accomplish that objective of creating a missile defense shield, especially the capabilities required from space. So while here in the United States, there was this debate raging over whether or not, they called it Star Wars to belittle the program. One of the things that was important is that the biggest competitor, the at the time, the enemy of the United States, the Soviet Union stepped up to the plate and said, look, we believe they can do it. And they started investing in, in, in capabilities that would be able to counteract uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And it was a, it was a piece, it was a small piece, but it was a piece of ultimately what led uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. That information power goes beyond, and by the way, wh why did they believe we could do it? They believed we could do it because just a decade earlier, they saw American astronauts walking on the surface of the moon. That is the, that is the tool of information power. When I was the NASA administrator, we landed a, a lander on Mars called InSight. InSight was on the cover of every newspaper worldwide, just, just like recently, um, a lot of you saw Perseverance, which is the first astrobiology mission, land on the moon. What was unique about InSight, Perseverance, it was the same way, but what was unique about InSight is that it was on the cover of a newspaper in Tehran. And the, sub, the subtext of the newspaper was uh, the, 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 the hardline uh, publication of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now, there aren't a lot of stories that come out from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that are positive about the United States of America. The last, uh, the last paragraph in that article, it talked about all of the international partners that were with us on the InSight landing on Mars. Um, now we think about, you know, why does that matter? Well, the, the idea is NASA has an ability through this tool of information power to help change uh, the thoughts of people all over the world towards the United States of America, especially young people. And in this case, we're talking about young people in Tehran, where they don't get good messages about the United States of America. So we need people to look at the United States of America and say, how is it that they're able to accomplish these things and not only do these things, but do them with international partners that are, that are in fact, you know, all over the world and how come we're not a part of that? That's the question that we want people asking um, because that's what American leadership is all about. Now that's diplomatic power, information power. Then we get to the M, which is military power. NASA is not an organization that's involved in the military apparatus itself. We, are, we were intentionally created by Dwight D. Eisenhower to be separate from the military apparatus because we were to be a tool of diplomacy, a tool of science, exploration, discovery. It's, it's, it's a tool where, where nations around the world want to partner with NASA. Um, and so we are kept separate from, from the Department of Defense inten intentionally. However, there is a lot of overlap. When you start thinking about the technologies that we develop, the capabilities that we develop, um, and ultimately how they flow into the commercial sector. And in fact, those commercial capabilities are being leveraged even right now by the Department of Defense in in unique ways that I think are important for the national security apparatus of the country. Finally, the E is, is you know, the economic power. 
um, a lot of people don't realize how dependent we are on space. We, we think about how we communicate. Right now, I'm looking at a camera in my computer. That camera was developed for a Mars lander uh, in the 1990s. Um, and of course, it was designed to be sufficiently small to reduce the, the mass, to reduce uh, the volume, ultimately uh, to, to be effective for a, an interplanetary mission. Now, not only is it available on everybody's laptop computers, it's available in cell phones, et cetera. But we, we think about that camera, the way we communicate. Um, think about this. Um, it, you know, we talk about internet broadband from space, connecting rural communities all over the world. We think about uh, DirecTV, Dish Network, XM Radio. Um, we, we think about uh, uh, the timing signal from GPS being necessary to regulate the flows of data on the terrestrial wireless network. If we don't have that GPS signal, we're not going to have our cell phones. They simply will not work. The terrestrial wireless network does not work without a GPS timing signal. So the way we communicate, the way we navigate, the way we produce food, the way we produce energy, uh, the way we do disaster relief, the way we understand weather, the way we not just understand, but predict weather and save lives, the way we understand the climate, the way we do national security and defense. We think about that timing signal from GPS. It is fundamentally necessary to regulate the flows of electricity on the power grid. If we lose that GPS signal, the power grid is then at risk. Um, as well as the banking system in the United States, every banking transaction dependent on a timing signal from GPS. Bottom line is this, as the NASA administrator, I heard a lot about Tang and Velcro. And I'm here to tell you that that, that, that misses the economic impact from space for the everyday American citizen in a way that most Americans don't realize it. But if we lose space, it is an existential threat to the United States of America. If we lose space, we lose the United States of America. That is how dependent we have become on our space-based capabilities, both commercially and then civilly, and of course, on the national security and defense side as well. So NASA plays on the economic side in a very significant way. We, we, you know, we talk about communication, navigation, production of food and energy and all these things. NASA is at the forefront leading those technological innovations and then commercializing them. But we're also using microgravity to advance medicines. We can compound pharmaceuticals in microgravity that you cannot do here on Earth. We think about um, not just pharmaceuticals, but immunizations, immunization for salmonella, immunization for pneumonia that are being advanced on the International Space Station. We're, we're creating human tissue using your own DNA. We're going to eventually be able to take your own DNA and create your own human tissue uh, for your own body, eventually full organs to replace organs in your own body. If you were to try to do that in the gravity well of, of Earth, the tissue just goes flat, but in space it can grow in three dimensions, uh, which is critically important. Um, and of course, we're creating a, a capability to you know, create an artificial human retina using advanced materials so that if you lose your eyesight from macular degeneration, uh, you can get an artificial retina right now, not possible. But the microgravity of space is what enables that to happen. So on the economic side, this is a critical capability where the United States of America absolutely must lead. Um, and so when we think about the elements of national power, yes, the, bi the big M is what everybody here is, is to hear about. And I'm certainly happy to talk about it. And I'm, I'm gonna, when it comes to our, our friends at Air University, uh, the Air Command and Staff College specifically, I'm looking forward to hearing their comments. But 
it's important to remember that when it comes to securing the country, there's all these elements of national power that go beyond military so that ultimately all of us can remain safe and secure and prosperous. Um, and with that, JV, I'll, I'll turn it back to you and certainly open it up to a few questions. Well, fantastic, sir. We've only got time for one or two questions with you. This is actually from the audience, um, and uh, it's several people asked a very similar question. As NASA moves forward with Artemis for landings on the moon and then Mars, how do you see the relationship between NASA and the Space Force changing? Well, I, I think it won't change much. I really don't think that it will. NASA is intentionally independent from the Department of Defense. The NASA administrator re reports directly to the President of the United States, um, and, and the Secretary of Defense uh, reports to the President of the United States. And, and that was designed intentionally to make sure that NASA would not be part of the Space Force. But I think wh where, where the biggest, I think, overlap happens is the technology. Um, as, as NASA develops technology, that technology transforms life here on Earth and it creates capability for commercial capabilities. I should say it creates commercial capabilities and then of course that can be um, used by the Department of Defense in significant ways. But, but I, I really think that NASA needs to not become part of the military capability because ultimately that's what gives us the leverage in the, on, the diploma, on, on the diplomatic side. Fantastic. Well, here's a little confusion uh, question for you. This is from Jack Byer with the Washington Free Beacon. I'd be interested in your uh, perspective on the recent controversy over Long March 5B and its trajectory, which reportedly narrowly missed the uh, International Space Station with little communication involved. Is there a role for Space Force or other uh, space-facing entities in protecting against the recurrence such incidents or uh, upholding norms for responsible behavior in space. Jim, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is where NASA plays a very strong role. Look, if you want to be part of the, you know, the community of nations that explores space together, which is what NASA leads, we, like I just talked about all of our diplomatic interactions, you know, one thing that's important to note is we have very little, almost no diplomatic interactions with China. And the reason is, because of these types of events. We go back to 2009 when they shot down a weather satellite and it resulted in orbital debris that today we're still dealing with as it relates to the International Space Station. And of course, this wasn't a unique event with the Long March 5B. This happened last May um, when it was getting ready to re-enter. It flew over Los Angeles. It flew over Central Park in New York City, eventually crashed into, and, and it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but look, there has to be you know, responsible behavior in space. It's a, it's, it's critical that we use the elements of diplomacy to compel good behavior. Um, but this, the, what concerns me most on the space force side is not a rocket body that everybody knew about and was watching and paying attention to. What, what, what occurs to me on the space force side is, you know, what are the things we can't see that we don't know about? What we think about things like CubeSats. The smaller things get, the harder they are to detect and know what they're up to and what they're doing. We have to be really good at space situational awareness. That includes not just ground sensors, but space-based sensors that are that are basically protecting and, and keeping an eye around our um, centers of gravity, around our most important satellites. When we think about space-based infrared or our national technical mean satellites, um, our you know, advanced, extremely high frequency satellites for nuclear command and control. These are, these are the capabilities that absolutely must be protected. 
a rocket body launched from China that everybody knows and sees, yeah, that's a problem just from a good public policy perspective. But that's not what that's not what um, concerns me when you think about the threats in space that would be nefarious in nature. Um, and and I'm, that's why I'm looking forward to the rest of the segment with the Air University professors. Well, great. You've been very generous with your time, sir. Congratulations on an extraordinary run as the administrator of NASA. I want to thank you for your time with us today, sir. Thank you, JV. And ladies and gentlemen, for the remainder of our time, we're going to pelt our, um, our, our two panelists, handsome as they are, with as many questions as we can. Could I get uh, Ev and Coyote, would you guys come up uh, both with your uh, cameras and your microphones, if you would? And as they're coming up, uh, Catherine, would you post the results of our two polls? Okay, how is the U.S. currently positioned to defend against a concerted attack on our space assets? This is pretty striking that more than half, 60% of the respondents uh, believe that we are well or, or somewhat well prepared for an attack, and only 40% believe otherwise. And one more, if you would, Catherine, the second question. Rate U.S. offensive counterspace capabilities in relation to China and Russia. Again, this is a surprising uh, results. U.S. is well ahead of its peers, 13% parity, 45%, uh, which means that half of our respondents believe that we are either ahead or uh, on a uh, par with uh, our peers. And then somewhat behind 37%, and then the U.S. well behind, a very small minority of 5% of our respondents. Okay, with that, would you take down that poll and let us see our two folks? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the center of my screen, I've got uh, Everett, Dr. Everett Dolman. He goes by Ev. And to his, uh, uh, goes his by left, I've got uh, uh, Dr. M.V. Coyote Smith. And you'll hear me re refer to both of them um, as uh, Ev and Coyote. And I, I look forward to the banner between the two of them as we move forward. So my first question is actually to you, Ev. Last summer, the United States Army employed Elon Musk's constellation of 600 Starlink satellites in their Project Convergence 2020 exercise. Those satellites are overtly designed to pr provide broadband uh, access to folks who are remotely situated around the world. That constellation has already grown, grown to 1,400 satellites, and they obviously have more capability than just giving folks access to the internet. Would you take a minute or two to tell us about what those capabilities might be on those satellites and what they mean for both the Space Force and for the other services? Uh, yeah, that, that, that was a pretty impressive uh, demonstration for, for a yeah, still limited uh, network of satellites that we're calling um, mega constellations now. We're looking at having a lot of those in the future, um, which is going to be a good thing and a bad thing. But the real advantage to this particular system is that it can provide for the military is communication and data uh, to far-flung, widely dispersed uh, uh, platforms from all services that uh, might be in a, a uh, data shadow that wouldn't have cell integration, um, that could be jammed uh, by radio jammers, um, hacked into by uh, such nefarious means, and particularly those isolated battle spaces or sometimes far behind enemy lines or where 
uh, out at sea where there is no cell type con uh, connection, you've got now a network of satellites that are linked by laser comms, which means that regular jamming is going to be very difficult against them. They're going to be very secure because even trying to hack into is difficult. You have to get in the beam itself to really access that. Uh, and so you've got a secure communication system that can provide every single platform and every single individual on the battle space with real-time streaming internet data level communications. And that is an extraordinary thing. The advantage that that comes, uh, I think one of the participants there, uh, I remember uh, one of the quotes, it allows us to see first, to understand first, decide first, and act first. The battle space is changing. Where it used to be a battle space of mass and fire, it's becoming a battle space dominated by information. And you can see the old John Boyd Oodaloo uh, in that as well. The asymmetric advantage that is going to come up is no longer in um, mass, uh, no longer in hours and days, but it's going to be in seconds and microseconds. It's not who gets the information, but who gets it, compiles it, aggregates it, understands it, decides on an act, and acts first. And then it doesn't matter if everyone has it, it's who can actually use it efficiently faster. And that's what the Army's working on in this case for an all-force joint, uh, joint operation. Well, great answer. Yeah, it's amazing how intertwined uh, the, the commercial, military, and civil sectors are becoming. And uh, Jim did a really good job of laying that out front, but this is another extraordinary example of it. So let me turn to Coyote. Uh, Coyote, we had uh, that poll survey came out, which was a, a little bit of a surprise to me. There's a public perception that up until recently, the United States had its head in the sand over a potential conflict in space. But obviously, our, our viewers here are not just strikingly handsome, but they're pretty savvy on what's going on with the United States space program. Um, the United States uh, established its uh, space weapons school at Nellis in 1996. As a space weapons school graduate yourself of that inaugural year and a follow-on instructor, could you address the perception, the public perception of how the U.S. policy, space for peaceful purposes, impacted your time as an instructor at the school? Well, I think that's really interesting and thank you very much. First of all, I need to, to caveat everything that I'm going to say with a disclaimer. I am an employee of the U.S. government. And so the statements that I say, including the statements that Dr. Evil is going to make, are ours alone and do not reflect necessarily the opinions of the US government, the United States Air Force, the United States Space Force, Air Command and Staff College, or even significant others, but they ought to. Um, stepping into the, your question there about space for peaceful purposes, I remember uh, being in attendance when Falcon Air Force Base was redesignated Schriever Air Force Base with General Bernard Schriever present for that redesignation. And uh, in General Lance Lord's office, who was the commander of Air Force Space Command at the time, we were having a reception for General Shriver. Uh, one of our young lawyers asked uh, General Shriver what his opinion was of space for peaceful purposes. And to paraphrase what the general said, the general chuckled a little bit and he said, space for peaceful purposes. What a bunch of effing BS that was. Um, he knew what we know is that space was never a sanctuary. From the time Sputnik went up until today, there's been tit for tat, space and counter space uh, by each of the great powers and even lesser powers that have become involved in outer space. Um, 
Back 25 years ago, I was the offensive and defensive counter space instructor at the Air Force Weapons School. And when we graduate our classes of space weapons officers, they go back out into the space forces as they were then to uh, integrate space capabilities into uh, active operations. However, uh, I was very upset by the fact that the Air Force was not giving us ample support to provide defense not just for our military satellites, but we were leaving our commercial assets absolutely undefended. Uh, I began a letter writing campaign to Congressman, excuse me, Senator Bob Smith from New Hampshire, who was my Senator at the time, and started a campaign to try to advance American space power. Um, this culminated in the creation of the Rumsfeld Space Commission, which would report out in 2001. Uh, it was, at that point in time that the statement was made that it was the last chance that the Air Force would have to get it right in space. The problem is the Air Force properly was making its priority air power. And the Air Force, because Congress set it up that way, would sacrifice second and third order missions such as space and cyber in order to maximize the output of air power. Uh, that's very reasonable. I would have done the same thing. No airman deserves criticism for that. But the problem was, Year after year after year, the Air Force was not closing the deal with providing defense for our military satellites or extending that defense to our commercial and ally type of satellites as well. Uh, it is really unfortunate. So when I take a look at the survey, I would say that we are presently today extremely poorly prepared to deal with adversary counter space against our satellites because we, we, we've got some encryption, some hardened systems, we've got some improved methods of communications, but basically one of the things that we're counting on are these massive constellations of large numbers of satellites, which is kind of like throwing skeet in front of the enemy's shotgun. And I'm not talking about kinetic weapons because space professionals and space control professionals don't talk about kinetic weapons or anything that creates space debris. When jammers, directed energy weapons and lasers are so effective and can be used so covertly that they have littered our history in space with their use. Um, but space is out of sight, out of mind. There's no explosions, nothing blows up. It's just services just don't get delivered to a customer. And the customer's left wondering whether they had their switch settings correct on their receiver sets. Things like this are the types of engagements that characterize space warfare. Well, fantastic. So, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you heard uh, Coyote reference Ev as Dr. Evil. I, I'm not sure if that's not what that stands for, Ev, at Evil, but but uh, just so you don't uh, get the two confused. Uh, Ev, this is, or Dr. Evil, this is a question for you. That Starlink uh, constellation we talked about a few minutes ago has 1,400 plus satellites right now, but it's on its way to grow to 45,000 satellites over the next uh, several years. And it is only one of the broadband games that's moving to space. Uh, Jeff Bezos has uh, Project Kuiper and others both here and the United States and beyond are moving in that, uh, that, that direction. Could you talk about the great goods and the challenges that competition will mean for the Space Force? Uh, yeah, and uh, by the way, it's, it's, it's pronounced Drevel, not Dr. Eagle. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, we, that is really something that's going to be a, uh, there's, there's no good that doesn't come, come with some bad. The amazing, just absolutely amazing real-time massive data capabilities we're going to get from space 
to include some very interesting ones uh, that may come up that help with uh, power production, uh, all green, looking at an all green uh, future for outer space. The big problem we've got with these massive satellites is what, despite the fact that space is a, these massive constellations, space is an enormous place. They're traveling very fast, 17 and a half thousand miles per hour, and any collision is going to be problematic. And the Space Force recognizes this. And, and for the first time uh, in its doctrine and in its public statements, the Space Force is championing a rules of the road approach, an internationally negotiated and agreed upon uh, um, approach that gives us ideas of when you're too close, what would proximity problems be, um, what you do with a rocket body that comes in, uh, how we make sure that those don't come in and land on anyone. What are the responsible things that spacefaring nations can do? And because the, it's not for in and of itself, it's to get to a point where we can develop an international space traffic management system. We're looking at uh, some of my colleagues tell me up to a quarter of a million satellites in low Earth orbit could operate successfully and safely if we have a robust and enforceable space traffic management system. Now, here's where the U.S. Space Force will play in, because uh, space is not uh, is not subject to sovereign ownership. And wherever you have uh, non-sovereign areas or, or areas where uh, no state holds sway, the only legitimate policing or use of force uh, uh, organization is the military when it's used. So the role the Space Force will probably have in the future is very much like the US Navy and other navies before it have had in the open seas. Um, if we can get a viable space traffic management system, it's the Air Force that's gonna provide the, the uh, lookout for that, the space situational awareness, uh, satellites that can monitor and see who is not following the rules and have some enforcement capability as well to perhaps remove debris, but also remove uh, non-compliant uh, software or, or satellites that are up there. The Space Force is also gonna have to combat piracy if we've seen with the recent ransomware attack, that, that is likely to happen with commercial satellite capabilities, if possible. Um, physical and cyber attacks in space will have to be uh, dealt with. Uh, the Space Force will have to keep lines of communication or transport open, just as the navies do, uh, taking out blockades. Uh, they will provide space weather data and warning data of events like radiation and so and uh, meteor, uh, dirt storms, et cetera, and stuff like that. Um, it may eventually do the, and probably will be, the, the arm that does uh, search and rescue operations in space as humans go out into space more. And generally illicit, illicit trafficking, we see that with uh, uh, human traffic on the open oceans. Uh, there's no one else to enforce that and make sure that people are, are safely uh, brought back to, to the shore. There will be some types of, of illicit trafficking that go on in space uh, as commerce grows. And this is the final thing I'll say on it, on, on this idea. Commerce has grown extraordinarily. And wherever we have had these non-sovereign areas like the open oceans, like the American West, when commerce grows, it really doesn't matter uh, if the military wants to get involved or think it's its role. Uh, they'll be called in to do those initial protections because they're the ones who can do it in the international system that we have today. Well, fantastic. Ev, you talked about uh, space situational awareness, and we got a question in from the audience about that. Before I go into it, uh, I explored a little bit of that in that Space Rebuilding America's Military paper that uh, you will find in the handout section, ladies and gentlemen, over on the right-hand side, at least a link to it. 
and I assessed how well we're doing there, how many uh, uh, platforms uh, that we have that are space-borne and what the, the land-based capability is. This question is actually from the audience. Um, I would love to hear about how the panel thinks we can improve and update our space situational awareness to better inform our national security needs as the militarization and commercialization of space increases. Uh, thoughts on that, Coyote? You're on mute, yeah. Uh, the good news is I just had a trio of young, Air, uh, two Air Force majors and a Naval Lieutenant Commander complete a very successful thesis on exactly that topic. They are talking about a uh, internationally based organization led by the, United Nations, by, by the United States, perhaps by NASA, perhaps by the FAA, that can fuse together all sensors of data to create what they call a space ecosystem characterization, something that goes beyond the military concept of space domain or space situational awareness, but one common recognized picture about what goes on on orbit. This is going to be published out as a book, we are hoping. Uh, if it's not published out by one of our publishers, we're definitely going to push this into a self-publishing situation here within this next year so that these students' thesis can actually be available and be reviewed by everyone in the world. We think it's absolutely essential for us to do this as a broad international partnership so that we all have a common understanding of what's going on on orbit, just as Dr. Evil or Drevel, or you have the E in the I, is it Drivel? It got, it got it confused. Uh, I think perhaps uh, uh, this will be an opening argument for how we can integrate our sensors in a much better, more mature manner as an international community. Outstanding. Uh, Ev, what do you think? Well, the, you know, the space relation awareness that we relied on for so long was ground-based uh, through uh, radar fences, through telescopes, et cetera. And the problem is, of course, going through the atmosphere, we get uh, a lot of ablution and, and coverage of uh, uh, dispersion of that. And it's difficult to really get any fidelity uh, from the Earth. We're going to have to have a network and maybe even a mega constellation of sensors in space that can, with, uh, with great Without, with the vacuum of space that will have the ability to see technical data, data on satellites, to see if they're violating any norms, to see these very small satellites that are almost impossible to see from the Earth. We can see clearly if we have a, a good network of space-based situational awareness satellites that can determine how close they are, where they're going. If there's right now from the ground, we can detect debris that's about the size of uh, your fist, maybe a little bit smaller. Uh, if we're going to actually start cleaning up the debris in space, actually removing debris from space, we're going to have to be able to see uh, things as uh, technically as small as a paint chip, because these can even be damaging given the speeds that they're going. So the, the easy answer there is we have got to have a network of satellites that are doing nothing but space situational awareness and getting that uh, to uh, groups that can deal with that, can give warning of collisions, warning of um, uh, events that are going on and, and actually determine who's following the rules. Uh, and that's going to be another Space Force uh, function. Uh, there were some earlier questions for uh, for uh, Director Bridenstine uh, sort of in this area. What is the role of Space Force? And, 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 and it, it, it dovetails with some of your, your questions. Uh, Space Force is probably a little premature, uh, but it's a forcing function. By getting Space Force out there, we're getting the people ready, we're getting people thinking about those things that we will be called upon to do uh, as, as the number one space power in the world uh, that we'll have to be responsible for. 
Fantastic. So we're getting near the end of our time, but I want to go into the offensive side uh, with you, Coyote. We hear about China and Russia and their offensive capabilities, the rendezvous, proximity operations, or RPO, but nothing about our capabilities. How does classification mask what we may already have fielded? And with NASA's leg up with CubeSats, rendezvous proximity technology, what may be on the horizon for the offensive side of our Space Force? You're on mute. One of the interesting things about Coyote is he thinks he got his name because uh, he almost hit a coyote as he was landing in pilot school, but it's it's actually because that's that's what he looks like. <laughs> Are you up, Coyote? No, no, I'm not. Nope, I'm, I've gone someplace else. Can you hear me? Yep, loud and clear. Okay. You know, it, the United States, Russia, China, a few other countries, we're all part of what we call the Space Fight Club. And there's three rules about the Space Flight Club, Fight Club. Number one, there's no talking about the Space Fight Club. Rule number two and three are the same. Um, when it comes to offensive type of capabilities, I'll just say this. The push that culminated in the creation of the U.S. Space Force uh, started under the Obama administration. Events happened. And President Obama, Obama discovered that uh, you could jam satellites. Not only that, it happens a lot. And he had been told that it was impossible to jam a satellite. And besides, nobody would do that because we have treaties against that. And that was not true. Well, uh, the Air Force sent some generals over to give the president the briefing on counter space threats that the adversaries pose against us. And he was quite literally shocked by this. And he directed that every member of Congress would be indoctrinated and would be given access to that briefing. One of those people was a Congressman Mike Rogers, who was from Alabama District 3, my member of Congress. And he described receiving that briefing as it scared the bejesus out of us. We had no idea we were that far behind. Uh, so to your second question there, we are well behind the, the Russians and the Chinese. Increasingly, if you read through the unclassified reports coming from the Director of National Intelligence Office over the last two to three years, increasingly we see Russia and China operating as part a partnership. And together they have a incredibly healthy and robust counter space set of capabilities um, that dwarf ours. Hence, the apprehension that the members of Congress have and why that was such a proponent, propellant to go forward. Something that people didn't hear uh, because this happened in the chat room before they brought us into the overall event. Um, uh, Jim Bridenstine, who was in Congress at the time, said that the creation of a space core, which became a space force, was one of the only bipartisan issues with over 370 votes off the House floor going forward. Remarkable, that is how bad the situation is, that it drove a consensus in, in the last Congress. It's kind of a sensitive topic, if I can jump in, uh, offensive capabilities in space. Uh, it's, it's not something we, we like to think about. But if I can, I can paraphrase the, uh, perhaps the only philosopher of war, Carl uh, von Clausewitz, defense is the stronger form. But if you can't go on the offense, eventually you will lose. Uh, and that's that's pretty much if we're actually advocates or 
or thinking about warfare in space and trying to avoid it, uh, that's primarily our purpose. Uh, we have to do both offensive and defensive capabilities, and the Space Force will be the legitimate arm uh, of the state that will have the, will be allowed to do that. Well, fantastic. You know, it's uh, kind of funny. Uh, in writing that uh, paper, the uh, space ramp, I interviewed uh, Dean Chang, our, our own in-house expert at uh, the Heritage Foundation, and he told me that in every war game that he had been in at the highest levels of classification, if you didn't have an offensive capability, you lost in every one of them. And that's a stark thing for us to stew on and maybe um, begin the next conversation with because we are at the end of our time for this one. Uh, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. Uh, to uh, the Honorable Jim Bridenstine, thank you very much, sir, for, for being with us. And for our two extraordinary panelists, uh, Coyote and Ev, thank you very much for for playing ball with us. Uh, we look forward to, to future engagements with all three of you over the weeks and months ahead. Want to take a minute to uh, remind you that after this is over with, uh, you shut down your uh, end of the internet, you're going to get a survey on today's um, engagement. Would really be grateful if you would take the time to review that for us and, uh, and maybe answer up some questions. It has been my honor to be with you today and absolutely a pleasure to be with these three extraordinary gentlemen. With that, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for us to bid you farewell. Thank you for joining us and until next time, uh, JV out. <laughs>